The call to worship this morning is found in Proverbs 8, verses 1 through 11, on page 589 of your Pew Bible. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city, at the entrance, she cries aloud, To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all humankind. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is right. My mouth speaks what is true, for my lips detest wickedness. All the words of my mouth are just. None of them are crooked or perverse. To the discerning, all of them are right. They are upright to those who have found knowledge. Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. This morning's Old Testament reading is found in Numbers 23, 18-24 in your Pew Bible. You can find it on page 147. I will be reading from the Contemporary English Version which is not your pew Bible. Balak asked, What did the Lord say? Balaam Balaam answered, Pay close attention to my words. God is no mere human. He doesn't tell lies or change his mind. God always keeps his promises. My command from God was to bless the people, and there is nothing I can do to change what he has done. Israel's king is the Lord God. He lives there with them and intends them no harm. With the strength of a wild ox, God led Israel out of Egypt. No magic charms can work against them. Just look what God has done for his people. They are like angry lions ready to attack, and they won't rest until their victim is gobbled down. The New Testament reading is taken from 1 Peter 2, verses 1-9, through found in your pew Bibles, page 1123. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by human beings, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen impression cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to, know, now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they are destined for. But you who are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Well, my friends, we are entering uncharted territory. I have never taken a sabbatical before, and it's terrifying. What if the three months go so quickly I decide I need another three or six or nine? What if I don't accomplish what I want to accomplish? 
And I feel like at the end of it, oh, I could have used my time even better. What if the deep rest I seek doesn't happen because I'm so busy doing projects I don't otherwise have time to do? And I find myself at the end of the sabbatical having accomplished something important but not having achieved that. So I have my own doubts and fears. Um, You know, what if while I'm gone everything changes? There's a whole new congregation when I get back. What if... What if the programs I started have fallen away? You know, you just you get to those moments of crass insecurity and you have to kind of let go and say, it's, it's, you're being silly now. And you have your own fears. Who's in charge? What's going to happen? Who's preaching while you're gone? Uh, you've never had a pastor who took a sabbatical. Will you be back? So let's answer a few of those questions right off the bat so that we can feel comfortable for the rest of today. Elder Mitch Williams, who has recently retired from the Downey Church, has agreed to spend time with you up here. Uh, I hope he'll do a couple of things. One, I think he's planning to speak at least six times while I'm gone, and he may be doing some more than that. But as I have it, and I'll be emailing you the schedule this week, he's preaching uh, at least February 8, 15, and 22. I don't know about February 1. He may be preaching then too. So the Elder Mitch Williams will be here for three or four in a row right off the bat. He's also an expert in small groups, and so he may be coming uh, around on occasion to help see if we can get that going again. I was talking with Milton yesterday, and it seems that there was a really fervent uh, movement for small group formation here in this church, and as we counted it up, it turned out to be about 20 years ago. So I'm guessing, what, five of you were here then, ten? So, um, you know, it's something that's uh, long, long since passed and been forgotten, but maybe uh, something that he can revive and renew and becomes a tool not only for your spiritual growth and mine, but for a community connection and outreach. The other speaker is Frank Haynes, and he's a chaplain currently. He had been a pastor uh, in a church before that. So he has lots of pastoral experience and chaplaincy experience. He's a good man. I know him. uh, think very highly of him. He's spoken here a couple of times, and he'll be filling in most of the other uh, blanks. I think Elder Rother will probably speak here at least once in the next three months, and you might have an elder speak at least once in the next three months. So nice mix of speakers, and hopefully that will uh, meet those needs. If you get stuck and you have a pastoral emergency, someone in your family is having surgery or somebody's sick and dying or you've had a tragic loss, please call Milton. Milton is our head elder, for those of you who don't know him. Uh, A wonderful and uh, formidable man both. I just think the world of him. I think his his, uh, grounding is unparalleled. His father was a pastor. He knows theology. He knows structure. He knows process. He's a businessman. He... He, he's the full package, Milton is. He just brings it all to the table, and we're delighted that, I'm delighted that I can work with him these many years, and with him at Glendale Academy before that, when he was board chairman there, and I know he'll take good care of you, or direct you to where you need to go. Elder Rothler is also a resource for you. He is our region director. For those of you who don't know him, for, for those of you who do, he pastored this church Uh, for four years before I came, and so you know him in that capacity too, and he can coordinate things and pieces for you. Uh, Your board remains active and in charge of the various ministries of our church, and so that will continue to function. And for the last piece, it is my intention to return. So uh, life happens in the meantime, but I I come to you honestly and say it's uh, 
I plan to come back, so we'll we'll uh, see you in three months, that, that, that kind of piece. So hopefully that answers some of the questions. I have an email that I'm putting out about why pastors need sabbaticals. I think um, you're no different than, than many, many people in many, many congregations. You see me once a week. Uh, most of you have no current needs or things that you want to talk to me about, so you don't. And um, your need of pastoral input into your life is minimal, and so it's easy to think that there's not much to this particular task or work. And so it's, what are you doing? Why do you need a break? I mean, don't you, don't you have, aren't you playing golf four days a week as it is? Uh, you know, I, I think there's a sense on some people's part anyway that the, the, this is uh, an avocation, not a vocation. And I just want to alleviate you of that thought that um, uh, there is indeed plenty of work to go around. And I, I list a few of those pieces going forward. Well, enough of the, uh, the obvious and, and what's coming so that we can be at ease one with another at this time of uh, temporary parting. I want to get to the text, and there are a bunch of them today, and I hope not to leave you in the dust with this, but to have you track with me because it's kind of a, a big series of things, and yet I'll try to be very clear moving into it. You know, when, you, when you're ready to take a break and you're as tired as I am, it's easy to think in terms of, uh, what do I want to say? What, what is it that as I part, what is it that I want to depart? Well, I have some good things I want to say, and I have some, some parting shots, too, perhaps. Maybe that's, you know, th- maybe this is a good time to get a few of those in as I, I take a break, and then, you know, it can settle down. And I, Well, I don't have any parting shots for you, and you'll see why in just a minute. Um, first of all, because God loves you, and I love you, and you're a great con- uh, congregation, but... I, I do have a few pieces of, of observation and counsel uh, that I want to leave you with that I think God can work on your hearts on and lives and whether uh, I were to stay and not take a sabbatical or not. I think it's just time to address a couple of pieces and then I have loads of blessings for you at the end of all of that too. So one of the things that comes to mind is a text that's found when we do communion. You know, when we, the elders are sitting up at the table, we look at 1 Corinthians and we read how on the night that Jesus was celebrating Passover with the disciples, he takes the cup and says, as Paul quotes, this is the cup of the covenant of my blood, etc. Well, let's turn to that passage and see something that comes a little earlier because it talks about community, and I want us to have a couple of heads up on community pieces that uh, um, pastorally I've had some, some cares about in the, in the past few months and, and maybe longer. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, Paul is really direct with the church. I won't be this direct for you, but I think it's kind of funny the way he phrases it. In the following directives, he says, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. That's pretty direct, isn't it? I'm not going to say to you that today, because that isn't characteristic of our church. Although, in humor, I do feel like on some occasions, there are some things that we could do a little better. So, for example, let me just give you something that's going to come up in this sermon as a community breaker. And we'll get to it with language from the Psalms and some other pieces we've already read. One thing that I've observed that's happening in small pockets of our congregation that has destroyed community in small pockets of our congregation is gossip. So I'm going to come back to that one. We have 
a lot of cares and concerns in the world, and it's, it's easy, even fun, to tell stories, but sometimes the way in which we speak becomes destructive of community. And that's when Paul, as pastor of the Corinthian church, cares, and that's when God steps in and says he cares about what's happening in community. Because what's really interesting to me is that we, we're very concerned about the list of sins, And we're quick to cite them, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lying. But we forget that gossip is on that same list. And that oftentimes gossip involves lying because we know socially that when we tell a story and it's repeated from person to person to person to person, it degenerates and takes on a life of its own. And by the time it gets a couple people down, is it still true? If it was true in the beginning? You tell me, is it? No. And yet these things get passed around and sometimes we think something of someone within our midst that we've heard on good authority that proves not to be true at all and could be damaging or misleading about their character or their actions or their place in our community. So I'm going to speak to that a little bit more in a minute. The other piece is community meals. I've spoken to you directly about potluck before, but before I go... I want to encourage you to practice community differently than we have been of late. Are you up for this, or should I just quit while I'm ahead? It's too late, my wife says. You've gone there. Don't You shouldn't have, but now you've gone. No. Potluck is a kind of communion. We don't think of it that way, but that's why I'm bringing up this 1 Corinthians text. The reason Paul doesn't have praise for the Corinthian church in this matter is that he says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. That doesn't seem to be our problem. No doubt there have to be differences among you in order to show which of you has God's approval. So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, and here's where we get at it. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. We have a couple of potluck matrons who work incredibly hard to prepare food for 50. But potluck should be 50 people preparing food for five. That's how it should be. It means all of us contributing and bringing when we join in that meal. And when we don't participate, we're taking advantage of the life, energy, work, care, love, concern, hospitality of another without having entered a social contract to do so. When I invite you to my home for lunch, I don't expect that you will have cooked something unless we agree that you're going to bring a particular thing. But when you come to a potluck meal, the standard understanding and agreement is that you will provide for yourself and others in doing that so that we can practice hospitality, not only amongst ourselves, but for those who have nothing, those who are aged, and for those who are visiting us. This is not happening in our midst. And I really want to encourage you, go to McDonald's or Burger King or something if you don't have the wherewithal to bring something 
that is what this means and what it's for. It's to be a celebration of something shared. That goes for cleaning up and all the other things. Nobody's a slave here. We're all co-workers with Christ. And that means that we all, as we're able by body to participate and clean up and set up, we can do it. So while I'm gone, I hope you'll practice on those pieces. Now one more piece along that. Sorry to be so direct. Actually, I'm not. But You can write in your uh, thank you to me. Thank you for being so direct if you can't think of anything else to say. Um, because you may not think of anything else to say after these, these few words uh, I've given you. Um, there's a tendency to think on some people's parts that if you go through line and you happen to be lucky enough to be toward the head of the line or the first of the line, that there won't be enough for you to get seconds. And so some of you are taking seconds your first time through. I wish I could videotape it for you. It's a little disgraceful, really. Um, I'm sorry. This is very embarrassing. And I'll tell you, um, many times by the time I make my way over to Potluck, there's nothing left. Um, And that's okay. I'm glad it's being all eaten. But I wonder what that means and what that says in terms of how we're going about the process of sharing that communal meal. Because if I've served you in the morning and have nothing with which to be served in the afternoon, what does that say about our community and our our communion and our sharing? What does that say about the body of Christ as we seek to feed one another, as we seek to eat together, as we share that common peace? So... Um, I don't want to see potluck go away. I have only praise for our uh, potluck hosts and matrons who've worked so hard to make that program go and happen. And I hope my comments are helpful to them and not perceived as hurtful to them because they do a great work and we're all blessed and served by it. And I'm not trying to tell you never to go to potluck again either. But I'm trying to say we can make this better. We can make this a true communion of the body of Christ, a fellowship meal at the table where Christ is the invisible guest and the hospitality is shared in a way that honors all and sustains all. Enough about that. Moving from that text over to the First Peter text that was read, First Peter 2, 1-9, I believe, 1-8. Pop over there for just a minute because it has some interesting things to say about who we are and how that shapes the way in which we live and behave. And I'm gonna, I, I think this is just an amazing passage, and I hope that it will deeply uh, impact you and bless you. I've never preached on this one uh, here that I can recall, and yet it has such power. Who are we? The question is, who are we to God? Who are we to one another? Um... Oh, I'm in Timothy. I went past Peter. Here we go. I have a new Bible, and it is harder to find things than it used to be. Any of you have that experience? Got it. Here's what it says. It was just read to you. Verse 9, you are who? A chosen people. 
A royal what? A holy nation. God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What does that tell us? Is that not the gospel? Is that not the most fantastic thing we could hear? What it tells us is that by virtue of God's act, by virtue of his love, by virtue of his grace, which is more profound than I could speak in a thousand sermons, more yours than I can possibly convey in a thousand sermons, God declares that we are not the people who drop the ball We're not the people who make mistakes. We're not the people who sin and fall short of the glory of God, per se. We're not those who are worthy of darkness. He calls us into his light, declares us his sons and daughters, the love of his life, and he says, you are a chosen people. Does that resonate at all? Can you hear that somewhere deep within the recesses of your soul? I was uh, at yoga church the other day. That's what I call it. You know, it's how many of you have done yoga before? Nobody. Okay, I am really a sinner and an outcast. I guess. Seriously, nobody's done yoga. Raise your hand. Okay, good. Some of you've done yoga. You know what they do? These instructors. It's it's the most bizarre thing because it's like a big body awareness exercise. So you'll be in some crazy position, and they'll say, "Breathe into your liver." Okay, what does that mean? Have you had that experience? Okay, you haven't. Well, you need to try this sometime just to hear these. It's really funny. Um, Breathe into your liver. Breathe into... Okay. Well, I don't know how to breathe into my liver or or the outer recesses of my low back or, or whatever it is. All I know is that I get a really good stretch. And I feel a lot more mobile after I do something like this. And so every now and then I go. And it, it, it's, it's a, an interesting piece. But I bring all that up because he says to us, out of being a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special possession that we're to sing the praises of, that we're not just any people but people of God and so forth, I want us to be able to breathe into the inner recesses of our own bodies and souls this knowledge. I, I, I don't know how, I'm not a yoga instructor and I don't want to be. I'm, I'm a pastor. But by God's Spirit, I want you to breathe, if you will, into yourself this idea that you are chosen. To feel it in the innermost places in your body. Is that too weird? Okay. Good. Good. Every now and then I try an example that somebody can relate to and somebody else can't, and that's just the way it goes. So feel it deep within you. Let God's spirit, his energy, place something deep within you that lets you know that you're chosen. A royal priesthood. What does that mean? What does it mean to be both a king and a priest? We don't have experience with either, do we? Would we understand that in elevated terms or in low terms? Certainly elevated. 
That isn't my opinion of myself or my opinion of you or your opinion of me or your opinion of one another. That's God's opinion of you. You are a group of kings and priests. Now, how would kings and priests behave at a potluck? That's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) You're a holy nation. A holy nation. Yes, we are part of the United States of America. That is our nationality. That is our citizenship. And yet we're citizens of a greater kingdom than any on earth. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. We're a holy nation. Called apart. Called to live differently. Called to relate to one another differently. Not tearing one another down. Not gossiping. Not slandering. But... Listening with holy ears and speaking with cleansed tongues. Every time I've gotten into trouble, and I've gotten into trouble a fair amount in my life, it's been because of my mouth. See, I'm, I'm worried about even getting in trouble as I speak to you now. It's so easy to do. Uh-huh. Amen, brother. <laughs> you know it. Every time, whether it was in grade school, any of you get into trouble in grade school? I did, and it was always with my mouth teacher would say, are you being smart? No. Yes. I got into trouble with my mouth time and time again, whether it was something I said or something that was off color or something I shouldn't have said or a way I asked a question or something, I got into trouble. There's a little, I don't know if you remember way back in the ancient days of antiquity, but if you went back to Adventist school way back when I did, there was a left side of the report card and a right side of the report card. How many of you remember that? Oh, good. On the right side of the report card was math, reading, science, you know, social studies, etc. And you get, you know, excellent, acceptable, good, whatever, you know, along the way. On the right side, on the left side, excuse me, was all behavioral stuff. Practices good safety habits. I always got needs to make more progress because my thing was to run down the hall at full speed and slide into the drinking fountain. For some reason, the teachers thought this was dangerous at my school. I never could get that. Shows respect for authority. That was an, always a needs, needs improvement on my... You know, there was just something about me that uh, needed to challenge the status quo or needed to say something when I probably shouldn't have... That was my story as a kid. And as I grew up, if I got into college, uh, I mean into trouble in high school or college, it was because of something I said or didn't say most of the time. And in my professional life, if I've had a relationship that became a challenge or if I've, you know, it's so easy sometimes, whether you mean to or not even, to say the wrong thing. The tongue is a very difficult thing to tame. Some of you who are just so wonderful and calm and positive and rational, if we could hear what you said when you were really angry and thought nobody was watching. The tongue is a terrible thing to tame. James makes that clear in in the wisdom that he offers in James chapter 3. He says, look, the tongue is the most difficult thing in the body to tame. Of all the things that we have to do, it's the most difficult. Learning... The the art, as Peter was saying to the children, of being grateful and saying thank you. Learning that art of asking with a please. 
These are things we teach children because they're so vitally important. Little tricks of the tongue that convey something so much bigger to all of us and make life so much easier. And so out of the tongue flow curses and blessings. And the reason that there is no possible way that God's people can be cursed comes from an ancient story. And I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus, excuse me, um, it's Numbers 22. How many of you noticed the uh, bulletin art today? Cool. It's nice, isn't it? We had a lot of choices. Travis does a great job giving me options, and then I like to pick. And this particular piece is probably not the most, how do I want to put it, artistically rendered in the sense of realism, but it's the most graphically interesting. And it depicts an angel with a sword raised against a man. Do you know who the man is? Balaam. Now, this story is set in the context of the Exodus and the entry into Canaan and all of that. Picture, if you will, if you can, um, the sea there, the Dead Sea. On the west side of the Dead Sea is Israel. On the right side of the Dead Sea is modern-day Jordan. On the left side of the Dead Sea was Israel ancient, and on the right side, lower corner of the Dead Sea, was a territory known as Moab. And all kinds of distant Shemite relatives of Israel actually lived in that territory. It was Shemitic peoples who lived there. And one of the natives that lived in that area around that sea was a man by the name of Balaam. He was a prophet, and actually the words of Balaam are recorded in extra-biblical sources, dating from, uh, in this case, the, the tablet they found that was quoting him was dated from about 900 B.C. Balaam is a prophet who knows the true and living God. And he has words that he says of blessing and of warning and curse like every prophet in ancient times did. But I think it's interesting to note that he's a native and not an Israelite and that he's approached by Balak. Let's just look at the story here. Uh, The Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak... Son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, The horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor near the Euphrates River in his native land. And Balak said, The people, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come, put a curse on these people. Well, this is a journey that he has to make now. A group goes to him. 
And if he's going to come, a journey has to be made. But when the group gets there, and this is a long story, and if I get a detail wrong, forgive me, but you can read it in three chapters. The group goes to him, and he says, Spend the night, and I will seek the will of the Lord. And the Lord tells him, No, he can't take this job. So he sends the group back to Balak. So uh, Balak... uh, comes back and says, don't let anything keep you from coming to me because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come put a curse on these people for me. So he sends another group back and does this again. And Balaam answered, even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I couldn't do anything great or small beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now spend the night so I can find out what the Lord will tell me. That night God came to Balaam and said, since these men have come to summon you with them, go with them, but only do what I tell you. Well, now you know the story that's on the cover of a bulletin. This is where that enters, that children's story. Balaam is making the journey with the officials, King Balak and his officials. He's making this journey to him. And in a narrow passage stands the angel of the Lord with sword, seraphim. The donkey sees the angel, but Balaam does not. And on three separate occasions, Balaam beats the donkey because it fails to progress even crushing his leg against a wall on one occasion. But we read in the story that the angel of the Lord opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel and, of course, he realizes what's going on and he repents, although he's not been any nicer to his donkey. And before, just before this happens, this is just a great story, uh, the donkey speaks. The angel opens the mouth of the donkey and the donkey turns to him and says, Why do you beat me? What, am, what have I done wrong? Have I ever done this to you before? Do you treat me like this? And Balaam's angry. He says, you know, if I had a sword, I'd kill you. And the donkey says, oh, really? Have I not been your beast of burden faithfully all this time? Now look. And, of course, the angel reveals himself, and Balaam is humbled. And you know what the angel says to Balaam? I have a sword, and if it were the will of the Lord, I would kill you, but spare your donkey. And now that's putting it to him. I love how the Lord steps in in these moments and keeps us all where we need to be. Balaam progresses, but he has his marching orders. He knows that he will only be able to say what the Lord gives him to say. And so he performs these routines. He gets to where he's getting... And he commands that seven altars be built and seven bulls and seven rams be placed on the altar. And as he does this, God comes to him and says, Go back to Balaam and give him this word. And so the first message comes. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? From the rocky peaks I see them. From the heights I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and may my final end be like theirs. And Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you've done nothing but bless them. And he answered, Must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? The second message, same story, seven altars, seven bulls, seven rams. God comes to him 
and there's another message. And that was our reading today. I'll just refresh you. Arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not human that he should lie. Nor does he speak. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have not received, excuse me, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot change it. No misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. They have strength of a wild ox. There is no divination against Jacob, no evil omens against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done. The people rise like a lioness. They rouse themselves like a lion that does not rest until it devours its prey and drinks the blood of its victims. Then Balak said to Balaam, Okay, neither curse them nor bless them at all. And Balaam answered, Did I not tell you I must do what the Lord says? So a third time, seven altars, seven bulls, seven rams. Balak, still hoping for a long shot here, still hoping God will finally permit him to be able to curse Israel and end the threat to Moab, that this horde that has come into the land will not prevail. Balaam goes up, Balaam and Balak and all of them go up to look over Israel to do the final curse. And Balaam looked out and saw Israel in camp tried by pride, and the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God came upon him and he spoke this message. Don't you love that? God is speaking through a non-Israelite prophet. The Spirit of God has come on him. And this is what he says. The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor. The prophecy of one who sees clearly. The prophecy of one who hears the word of God. Who sees the vision from Almighty. Who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. How beautiful are your tents, Jacob, your places, O Israel. Like valleys they spread out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars besides the water. Water will flow from their buckets, their seed will have abundant water. Their king will be greater than Agog, and their kingdom will be exalted. God brought them out of Egypt, they have the strength of a wild ox. They devour hostile nations and break their bones in pieces, with their arrows they pierce them. The lion... Like a lion, they crouch and lie down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse them? May those who bless you be blessed, and may those who curse you be cursed. Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said to him, I've summoned you to curse my enemies, but you've blessed them three times. Now leave and go at once to your home. And I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. Balaam answered Balak, Did I not tell the messengers you sent me? Even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not say anything of my own accord. Good or bad, to go beyond the command of the Lord, I must only say what the Lord says. Now I'm going back to my people, but come. Let me warn you of what this people will do to you in days to come. Again he spoke a message. And he sees and he hears the words of the Almighty. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Jesus. Yeah. Had you heard that before? Yeah, isn't that beautiful? 
in Balaam's words a prophecy of the coming Messiah. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will go strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. If you literalize that, you miss the meaning. Yes, Moab was a people, a Shemitic people, related. Remember, Abraham's nephew Lot committed a heinous crime, or his daughters did, they seduced him. And by incest, bore him a son named Moab. And that son was the father of the people, the Moabites. So when it says, I will crush the forehead of Moab, it is not talking about God's wanton destruction of a people. It's talking about the way in which this messianic figure will end the problem that comes with unfaithfulness. He'll cleanse of impurity. You hear Isaiah saying, for he's like a refiner's fire in all these different passages. There's a cleansing act to what's happening here. There's a symbolic act in which God is going to make Israel whole and pure. And then it says, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. Now Sheth is actually a term that comes from India, Pakistan, the Far East. Trade routes existed between China through India all the way through the Middle East and into Israel, of course, and into Europe at the time. We like to think of ancient times as just individual cities kind of on their own, but the world was connected in ancient times just more slowly than it is today, but connected nonetheless. A sheth was the wealthiest person in the village. A sheth was the top-rung person by virtue of accumulated wealth. And so when it says he's going to crush the skull of a sheth, a vision is being cast for Israel in which things will be shared and shared more alike and more in common. We note archaeologically, this comes from my time in Jerusalem, that when there was great disparity in Jerusalem between the rich and the poor in terms of the size of the houses that they excavate, those were periods of great stress in Israel. Those were times of hostility and tension within the land. When the houses are more equalized and the opportunity is spread greater, there's peace in the land. Archaeologically, that's one of the interesting things that comes up. What God is prophesying is that Israel, as it lives out its life under God, will fulfill what Jesus spoke Actually, Isaiah. Every mountain will be made low and every valley lifted up. Straight places made plain for the coming of the king. Balaam's prophecy ties into Isaiah's and ties into the coming of the Christ who declared you to be a nation of priests and kings who has declared for you three times after a king willing to sacrifice all the gold and silver in his house, seven bulls and seven rams and building seven altars and making Balaam travel to him and traveling again and again back and forth to the site three times. 
After all that effort to put a curse on Israel, God's chosen people, the only thing that could be said was words of blessing. And so that's my parting shot. My parting shot before I take this three months of rest is this. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and grant you peace because you are worthy. You are his children. You are a nation of priests and kings. You are a chosen people. You are his elect. You are his beloved. You are the apple of his eye. You are the ones he has given himself for and continues to give himself for. You're the ones whose lives he desires to inhabit, whose words he would have you speak his words, whose he's, his grace is the grace he would have you share with the community and with the world. And whatever else happens as the Lord watches between you and between me while we're absent in this brief period, I pray that you will indeed feel, see, know that you are blessed. God's beloved own. And now may the God of all grace and all mercies, all joy and all love be ours now and forevermore. And may he hold each of you in the palm of his hand. Amen.